Chapter 19 of Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 19. Comparison of Results. Let us now bring our scattered results side to side for the purpose of comparison, and judge of the extent to which they corroborate one another, how far they confirm the provisional calculations made in the chapter on judges from more scanty data, and where and why they contrast. The number of cases of hereditary genius analysed in the several chapters of my book amount to a large total. I have dealt with no less than 300 families, containing between them nearly 1,000 eminent men, of whom 415 are illustrious, or at all events, of such note as to deserve being printed in black type at the head of a paragraph. If there be such a thing as a decided law of distribution of genius in families, it is sure to become manifest when we deal statistically with so large a body of examples. In comparing the results obtained from the different groups of eminent men, it will be our most convenient course to compare the columns upper B of the several tables. Column upper B gives the number of kinsmen in various degrees, on the supposition that the number of families in the group to which it refers is 100. All the entries under B have therefore the same common measure. They are all percentages, and admit of direct intercomparison. I hope I have made myself quite clear. Lest there should remain any misapprehension, it is best to give an example. Thus, the families of divines are only 25 in number, and in those 25 families there are 7 eminent fathers, 9 brothers, and 10 sons. Now, in order to raise these numbers to percentages, 7, 9, and 10 must be multiplied by the number of times that 25 goes into 100, namely by 4. They will then become 28, 36, and 40, and will be found entered as such in column B, page 275, the parent numbers 7, 9, 10, appearing in the same table in the column A. In the following table, the columns B of all the different groups are printed side by side. I have, however, thrown painters and musicians into a single group of artists, because their numbers were too small to make it worthwhile to consider them apart. A table is displayed on the page with three main columns descending, titled The Number of Families is Containing More Than One Eminent, and the Total Number of Eminent Men in All the Families, Separate Groups, and All Groups Together. And next to these is a column B, calculated from the whole of the families put together, with the intention of giving a general average, and I have further attached to it its appropriate columns C and D, not so much for particular use in this chapter, as for the convenience of the reader who may wish to make comparisons with the other tables, from the different point of view which D affords. The general uniformity in the distribution of ability among the kinsmen in the different groups is strikingly manifest. The eminent sons are almost invariably more numerous than the eminent brothers, and these are a trifle more numerous than the eminent fathers. On proceeding further down the table, we come to a sudden dropping off of the numbers at the second grade of kinship, namely at the grandfathers, uncles, nephews, and grandsons. This diminution is conspicuous in the entries in column D, the meaning of which has already been fully described in page 81 to 83. On reaching the third grade of kinship, another abrupt dropping off in numbers is again met with, but the first cousins are found to occupy a decidedly better position than other relations within the third grade. We further observe that while the proportionate abundance of eminent kinsmen in the various grades is closely similar in all the groups, the proportions deduced from the entire body of illustrious men, 415 in number, coincide with peculiar general accuracy with those we obtained from a large subdivision of 109 judges. There cannot, therefore, remain a doubt as to the existence of a law of distribution of ability in families, 
or that is pretty accurately expressed by the figures in column B, under the heading of eminent men of all classes. I do not, however, think it worthwhile to submit a diagram like that in page 83, derived from the column D in the last table, because little dependence can be placed on the entries in C, by the help of which that column had to be calculated. When I began my inquiries, I did indeed try to obtain real and not estimated data for C, by inquiring into the total numbers of kinsmen in each degree, of every illustrious man, as well as of those who achieved eminence. I wearied myself for a long time with searching biographies, but finding the results very disproportionate to the labour, and continually open to doubt after they had been obtained. I gave up the task, and resigned myself to the rough but ready method of estimating averages. It is earnestly to be desired that breeders of animals would furnish tables, like mine, on the distribution of different marked physical qualities in families. The results would be far more than mere matters of curiosity, and would afford constants for formulae by which I shall briefly show, in a subsequent chapter, the laws of heredity, as they are now understood, may admit of being expressed. In contrasting the columns B of the different groups, the first notable peculiarity that catches the eye is the small number of the sons of commanders, they being 31, while the average of all the groups is 48. There is nothing anomalous in this irregularity. I have already shown, when speaking of the commanders, that they usually begin their active careers in youth, and therefore, if married at all, they are mostly away from their wives on military service. It is also worthwhile to point out a few particular cases where exceptional circumstances stood in the way of the commanders leaving male issue, because the total number of those included in my lists is so small, being only 32, as to make them of appreciable importance in affecting the results. Thus Alexander the Great was continually engaged in distant wars, and died in early manhood. He had one posthumous son, but that son was murdered for political reasons when still a boy. Julius Caesar, an exceedingly profligate man, left one illegitimate son by Cleopatra, but that son was also murdered for political reasons when still a boy. Nelson married a widow who had no children by her former husband, and therefore was probably more or less infertile by nature. Napoleon I was entirely separated from Mary Louise after she had borne him one son. Though the great commanders have but few immediate descendants, yet the number of their eminent grandsons is as great as in the other groups. I ascribe this to the superiority of their breed, which ensures eminence to an unusually large proportion of their kinsmen. The next exceptional entry in the table is the number of eminent fathers of the great scientific men as compared with that of their sons, there being only 26 of the former to 60 of the latter. Whereas the average of all the groups gives 31 and 48, I have already attempted to account for this by showing, first, that scientific men owe much to the training and to the blood of their mothers, and secondly, that the first in the family who has scientific gifts is not nearly so likely to achieve eminence as the descendant who is taught to follow science as a profession and not to waste his powers on pointless speculations. The next peculiarity in the table is the small number of eminent fathers in the group of poets. This group is too small to make me attach much importance to the deviation. It may be mere accident. The artists are not a much larger group than the poets, consisting as they do of only 28 families, but the number of their eminent sons is enormous and quite exceptional. It is 89, whereas the average of all the groups is only 48. The remarks I made about the descendant of a great scientific man prospering in science, more than his ancestor, are eminently true as regards artists, for the fairly gifted son of a great painter or musician is far more likely to become a professional celebrity than another man who has equal natural ability but is not especially educated for professional life.
The large number of artists' sons who have become eminent testifies to the strongly hereditary character of their peculiar ability, while if the reader will turn to the account of the Herschel family, page 215-216, he will readily understand that many persons may have decided artistic gifts who have adopted some other more regular, solid, or lucrative occupation. I have now done with the exceptional cases. It will be observed that they are mere minor variations in the law expressed by the general average of all the groups. For if we say that every ten illustrious men who have any eminent relations at all, we find three or four eminent fathers, four or five eminent brothers, and five or six eminent sons, we shall be right in seventeen instances out of twenty-four, and in the seven cases where we are wrong, the error will consist of less than one unit in two cases. The fathers are the commanders and men of literature. Of one unit in four cases, the father of poets and the sons of judges, commanders and divines, and of more than one unit in the sole case of the sons of artists. The deviations from the average are generally greater in the second and third grades of kinship, because the numbers of instances in the several groups are generally small. But as the proportions in the large subdivision of the 85 judges correspond with extreme closeness to those of the general average, we are perfectly justified in accepting the latter with confidence. The final and most important result remains to be worked out. It is this. If we know nothing else about a person than that he is a father, brother, son, grandson, or other relation of an illustrious man, what is the chance that he is or will be eminent? Column E in page 61 gives the reply for judges. It remains for us to discover what it is for illustrious men generally. In each of the chapters, I have given such data as I possessed, fit for combining with the results in column D, in order to make the required calculation. They consist of the proportion of men whose relations achieved eminence, compared with the total number into whose relationships I inquired. The general result is that exactly one-half of the illustrious men have one or more eminent relations. Consequently, if we divide the entries in column D of eminent men of all classes, page 317 by 2, we shall obtain the corresponding column E. The reader may, however, suspect the fairness of my selection. He may recollect my difficulty avowed in many chapters of finding suitable selections, and will suspect that I have yielded to the temptation of inserting more than a due share of favourable cases, and I cannot wholly deny the charge, for I can recollect a few names that probably occur to me owing to the double or triple weight given to them by the culminated performances of two or three persons. Therefore, I acknowledge it to be quite necessary, in the interests of truth, to appeal to some wholly independent selection of names, and will take for that purpose the saints, or whatever their right name may be, of the Comtist calendar. Many of my readers will know to what I am referring, how August Comte, desiring to found a religion of humanity, selected a list of names from those to whom human development was most indebted and assign the months to the most important, the weeks to the next class, and the days to the third. I have nothing whatever to do with the Comte's doctrines in these pages. His disciples dislike Darwinism, and therefore cannot be expected to be favourable to many of the discussions in this book. So I have the more satisfaction in the independence of the testimony afforded by his calendar to the truth of my views. Again, no one can doubt that Comte's selections are entirely original for he was the last man to pin his faith upon that popular opinion which he aspired to lead. Every name in his calendar was weighed, we may be sure, with scrupulous care, though I dare say with a rather crazy balance before it was inserted in the place which he assigned for it in his calendar. The calendar consists of thirteen months, each containing four weeks. 
The following table gives the representatives of the 13 months in capital letters and those of the 52 weeks in ordinary type. I have not thought it worthwhile to transcribe the representatives of the several days. Those marked with A star are included in my appendices as having eminent relations. Those with A plus might have been so included. It will be observed that there are from 10 to 20 persons of whose kinships we know nothing or next to nothing, and therefore they should be struck out of the list, such as Numa, Buddha, Homer, Phidias, Thales, Pythagoras, Archimedes, Apollonius, Hipparchus, St. Paul. Among the remaining 55 or 45 persons, no less than 27 or one-half have eminent relations. 1. Theocracy, initial. Plus Moses. Numa, Buddha. Plus Confucius, Mahomet. 2. Ancient poetry. Homer. Plus Aeschylus. Phidias, plus Aristophanes, Virgil. 3. Ancient philosophy. Star, Aristotle. Thales, Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato. 4. Ancient science. Archimedes, plus Hippocrates, Apollonius, Hipparchus. Star, Pliny the Elder. 5. Military civilization. Star, Caesar. Themistocles, star, Alexander. Star, Scipio, Trajan. 6. Catholicism, St. Paul, plus St. Augustine, Hildebrand, St. Bernard, Bosset. 7. Feudal Civilization, Charlemagne, Alfred, Godfrey, Innocent III, St. Louis. 8. Modern Epic, Dante, Star, Ariosto, Raphael, Tasso, Star, Milton. 9. Modern Industry, Gutenberg, Columbus, Vulcanson, Star, Watt, plus Montgolfier. 10. Modern Drama, Shakespeare, Calderon, Star, Corneille, Malayer, Star, Mozart. 11. Modern Philosophy, Descartes, Star, St. Thomas Aquinas, Star, Lord Bacon, Star, Leibniz, Hume. 12. Modern Politics, Frederick the Great, Lewis Eleventh, Star, William the Silent, Star, Riccolo, Star, Cromwell, 13, Modern Science, Bicat, Star, Galilei, Star, Newton, Lavoisier, Gaul. It is singularly interesting to observe how strongly the results obtained from Comte selection corroborate my own. I am sure, then, we shall be within the mark we consider column D in the table, page 317, to refer to the eminent kinsmen, not of the large group of illustrious and eminent men, but of the more select portion of illustrious men only, and then calculate our column E by dividing the entries under D by 2. For example, I reckon the chances of kinsmen of illustrious men rising or having risen to eminence to be 15.5 to 100 in the case of fathers, 13.5 to 100 in the case of brothers, 24 to 100 in the case of sons. Or putting these in the remaining proportions into a more convenient form, we obtain the following results. In first grade, the chance of the father is 1 to 6, of each brother 1 to 7, of each son 1 to 4. In second grade, of each grandfather 1 to 25, of each uncle 1 to 40, of each nephew 1 to 40, of each grandson 1 to 29. In the third grade, the chance of each member is about 1 to 200, excepting in the case of first cousins where it is 1 to 100. 
The large number of eminent descendants from illustrious men must not be looked upon as expressing the results of their marriage with mediocre women, for the average ability of the wives of such men is above mediocrity. This is my strong conviction after reading very many biographies, although it clashes with a commonly expressed opinion that clever men marry silly women. It is not easy to prove my point without a considerable mass of quotations to show the estimate in which the wives of a large body of illustrious men were held by their intimate friends, but the two following arguments are not without weight. First, the lady whom a man marries is very commonly one whom he has often met in society of his own friends, and therefore not likely to be a silly woman. She is also usually related to some of them, and therefore has a probability of being hereditarily gifted. Secondly, as a matter of fact, a large number of eminent men marry eminent women. If the reader runs his eye through my appendices, he will find many such instances. Philip II of Magadon and Olympias, Caesar's liaison with Cleopatra, Milabro and his most able wife, Helvetius, married a charming lady whose hand was also sought by both Franklin and Turgot. August Wilhelm von Schlegel was heart and soul devoted to Madame de Stael. Necker's wife was a blue stocking of the purest hue. Robert Stevens, the learned printer, had Petronella for his wife. The Lord Keeper Sir Nicholas Bacon and the great Lord Burleigh married two of the highly accomplished daughters of Sir Anthony Cook. Every one of these names, which I have taken from the appendices of my chapters on commanders, statesmen and literary men, are those of decidedly eminent women. They establish the existence of a tendency of like to like among intellectual men and women, and make it most probable that the marriages of illustrious men with women of classes upper A and upper D are very common. On the other hand, there is no evidence of a strongly marked antagonistic taste of clever men liking really half-witted women. A man may be conscious of serious defects in his character and select a wife to supplement what he wants. As a shy man may be attracted by a woman who has no other merits than those of a talker and a manager. Also, a young awkward philosopher may accredit the first girl who cares to show an interest in him with greater intelligence than she possesses. But these are exceptional instances. The great fact remains that able men take pleasure in the society of intelligent women, and if they can find such as would in other respects be suitable, they will marry them in preference to mediocrities. I think, therefore, that the results given in my tables, under the head of sons, should be ascribed to the marriages of men of class upper F and above, with women whose natural gifts are on the average not inferior to those of class upper B, and possibly between upper B and upper C. I will now contrast the power of the male and female lines of kinship in the transmission of ability, and for that purpose we will reduce the actual figures into percentages. As an example of the process, we may take the case of the judges. Here, as will be observed in the footnote, the actual figures correspond to the specified varieties of kinship are 41, 16, 19, 1, making a total of 77. Now I raise these to what they would be if this total were raised to 100. In short, I multiply them by 100 and divide by 77, which converts them into 53, 21, 25, 1. And these are the figures inserted in the table. The actual figures are... A table is displayed on the page, titled as The Actual Figures Are. It has several columns running down, with the corresponding letters, followed by judges, statesmen, commanders, literary, scientific, poets, artists, divines, and totals. It will be observed that the ratio of the total kinships through male and female lines is almost identical in the first five columns, namely in judges, statesmen, commanders, men of literature, and men of science, and is as 70 to 30, or more than 2 to 1. The uniformity of this ratio is evidence of the existence of a law 
but it is difficult to say upon what the law depends, because the ratios are different for different varieties of kinship. Thus, to confine ourselves to those in the second grade which are sufficiently numerous to give averages on which dependence may be placed, we find that the sum of the ratios of upper G, upper U, upper N, upper P, to those of lower G, lower U, lower N, lower P, is also a little more than 2 to 1. Now the actual figures are as follow. 21, upper G, 23, upper U, 40, upper N, 26, upper P, equals 110 in all. 21, lower G, 16, lower U, 10, lower N, 6, lower P, equals 53 in all. The first idea which will occur is that the relative smallness of the numbers in the lower line appears only in those kinships which are most difficult to trace through the female descent, and that the apparent inferiority is in exact proportion to that difficulty. Thus the parentage of a man's mother is invariably stated in his biography. Consequently, an eminent lower G is no less likely to be overlooked than a upper G, but a lower U is more likely to be overlooked than an upper U, and an lower N and lower P much more likely than an upper N and upper P. However, the solution suggested by these facts is not wholly satisfactory, because the differences appear to be as great in the well-known families of the statesmen and commanders as in the obscure ones of literary and scientific men. It would seem from this and from what I shall have to say about the divines that I have hunted out the eminent kinsmen in these degrees with pretty equal completeness in both male and female lines. The only reasonable solution which I can suggest besides that of inheriting capacity of the female line for transmitting the peculiar forms of ability we are now discussing is that the aunts, sisters and daughters of eminent men do not marry, on the average, so frequently as other women. They would be likely not to marry so much or so soon as other women, because they would be accustomed to a higher form of culture and intellectual and moral tone in their family circle than they could easily find elsewhere, especially if owing to the narrowness of their means, their society were restricted to the persons in their immediate neighbourhood. Again, one portion of them would certainly be of a dogmatic and self-asserting type, and therefore unattractive to men, and others would fail to attract, owing to their having shy odd manners, often met with in young persons of genius, which are disadvantageous to the matrimonial chances of young women. It will be observed in corroboration of this theory that it accounts for lower G being as large as upper G because a man must have an equal number of lower G and upper G, but he need not have an equal number of lower U, lower N, lower P, and upper U, upper N, upper P. Owing to want of further information, I am compelled to leave this question somewhat undecided. If my column C of my tables had been based on facts instead of an estimate, these facts would have afforded the information I want. In the case of poets and artists, the influence of the female line is enormously less than the male and in these the solution I have suggested would be even more appropriate than in the previous groups. Among the divines we come to a wholly new order of things. Here the proportions are simply inverted, the female influence being to the male of 73 to 27 instead of as, in the average of the first five columns, 30 to 70. I have already, in the chapters on divines, spoken at so much length about the power of female influence in nurturing religious dispositions that I need not recur to that question. As regards the presumed disinclination to marriage among the female relatives of eminent men generally, an exception must certainly be made in the case of those of the divines. They consider intellectual ability and a cultured mind of small importance compared with pious professions, and religious society is particularly large, owing to habits of association for religious purposes. Therefore, the necessity of choosing a pious husband is no maternal hindrance to the marriage of a near female relation of an eminent divine. 
There is a common opinion that great men have remarkable mothers. No doubt they are largely indebted to maternal influences, but the popular belief ascribes an undue and incredible share to them. I account for the belief by the fact that great men have usually high moral natures and are affectionate and reverential, inasmuch as mere brain without heart is insufficient to achieve eminence. Such men are naturally disposed to show extreme filial regard and to publish the good qualities of their mothers with exaggerated praise. I regret I am unable to solve the simple question whether, and how far, men and women who are prodigious of women so, and it will be seen from my point of view of that future of the human race, as described in a subsequent chapter, that the fertility of eminent men is a more important fact for me to establish than that of prodigies. There are many difficulties in the way of discovering whether genius is, or is not correlated with infertility. One, and a very serious one, is that people will agree upon the names of those who are pre-eminently men of genius, nor even upon the definition of the word. Another is that the men selected as examples are usually ancients, or at all events, those who lived so long ago that it is often and always very difficult to learn anything about their families. Another difficulty lies in the fact that the man who has no children is likely to do more for his profession and to devote himself more thoroughly to the good of the public than if he had them. A very gifted man will almost always rise, as I believe, to eminence. But if he is handicapped with the weight of a wife and children in the race of life, he cannot be expected to keep as much in the front as if he were single. He cannot add no other pressing calls on his attention. So domestic sorrows, anxieties, and petty cares, no yearly child, no periodical infantile epidemics, no constant professional toil for the maintenance of a large family. There are other obstacles in the way of leaving descendants in the second generation. The daughters would not be so likely as other girls to marry, for the reasons stated a few pages back, while the health of the sons is liable to be ruined by overwork. The sons of gifted men are decidedly more precocious than their parents, as a reference to my appendices will distinctly show. I do not care to quote cases because it is a normal fact, analogous to what is observed in diseases, and in growths of all kinds, as well as clearly laid down by Mr. Darwin. The result is that the precocious child is looked upon as a prodigy, abler even than his parent, because the parent's abilities at the same age were less, and he is pushed forward in every way by home influences until serious harm is done to his constitution. So much for the difficulties in the way of arriving at a right judgment on the question before us. Most assuredly, a surprising number of the ablest men appear to have left no descendants. But we are justified, from what I have said, in ascribing a very considerable part of the adducted instances to other causes than an inherent tendency to barrenness in men and women of genius. I believe there is a large residuum which must be ascribed, and I agree thus far with the suggestion of Prosper Lucas that as giants and dwarfs are rarely prolific, so men of prodigiously large or small intellectual powers may be expected to be deficient in fertility. On the other hand, I utterly disagree with the assertion of that famous author on hereditary that true genius is invariably isolated. There is a prevailing belief somewhat in accordance with the subject of the last paragraph, but one, that men of genius are unhealthy, puny beings, all brain and no muscle, weak-sighted and generally of poor constitutions. I think most of my readers would be surprised at the stature and physical frames of the heroes of history who fill my pages. They could be assembled together in a hall. I would undertake to pick out any group of them, even out of that of the divines, see page 270-271, and eleven who should compete in any physical feats whatever against similar selections from groups of twice or thrice their number, taken at haphazard, 
from equally well-fed classes. In the notes I made, previous to writing this book, I have begun to make memoranda of the physical gifts of my heroes, and regret now that I did not continue the plan. But there is even almost enough printed in the appendices to warrant my assertion. I do not deny that many men of extraordinary mental gifts have had wretched constitutions, but deny them to be an essential or even the usual accomplishment. University facts are as good as any others to serve as examples, so I will mention that both high wranglers and high classics have been frequently the first oarsmen of their years. The Honorary George Denman, who was senior classic in 1842, was the stroke of the university crew. Sir William Thompson, the second wrangler in 1845, won the skulls. In the very first boat race between the two universities, three men, who afterwards became bishops, rowed in one of the commanding boats, and another rowed in the other. It is the second and third-rate students who are usually weekly. A collection of living magnates in various branches of intellectual achievement is always a feast to my eyes, being as they are such massive, vigorous, capable-looking animals. I took some pains to investigate the law of mortality in the different groups and drew illustrative curves in order to see whether there was anything abnormal in the constitutions of eminent men, and this result certainly came out, which goes far to show that the gifted men consist of two categories, the very weak and the very strong. It was that the curve of mortality does not make a single bend, but it rises to a minor culminating point, and then, descending again, takes a fresh departure for its principal arc. There is a want of continuity in the regularity of its sweep. I conclude that among the gifted men there is a small class who have weak and excitable constitutions, who are distant to early death, and that the remainder consists of men likely to enjoy a vigorous old age. This double culmination was strongly marked in the group of artists and distinctly so in that of poets, but it came out with most startling definition when I laid out the cases of which I had made notes. Ninety-two in number, of men remarkable for their precocity. Their first culmination was at the age of thirty-eight, then the death rate sank to the age of forty-two. At fifty-two it had again risen to what it was at thirty-eight, and it attained its maximum at sixty-four. The mortality of the men who did not appear to have been eminently precocious, one hundred and eighty cases in all, followed a perfectly normal curve rising steadily to a maximum of 68 years, and then declining as steadily. The scientific men lived the longest, and the number of early deaths among them was decidedly less than in any of the other groups. The last general remark I have to make is that features and mental abilities do not seem to be correlated. The son may resemble his parent in being an able man, but it does not therefore follow that he will also resemble him in features. I know of families where the children who had not the features of their parents inherited their disposition and ability, and the remaining children had just the converse gifts. In looking at the portraits in the late national exhibitions, I was extremely struck with the absence of family likeness in cases where I had expected to find it. I cannot prove this point without illustrations. The reader must therefore permit me to leave its evidence in an avowedly incomplete form. In concluding this chapter, I may point out some of the groups that I have omitted to discuss. The foremost engineers are a body of men possessed of remarkable natural qualities. They are not only able men, but are also possessed of singular powers of physical endurance and boldness, combined with clear views of what can and what cannot be affected. I have included Watt and Stevenson among the men of science, but the Brunels and the curious family of Myon, going back for nine, if not twelve generations, all able and many eminent in their professions, and several others deserve notice. I do not, however, see my way to making a selection of eminently gifted engineers because their success depends, in a very great degree, on early opportunities. If a great engineering business is once established, with well-selected men in their heads in various departments, 
it is easy to keep up the name and credit for more than one generation after the death of its gifted originator. The actors are very closely connected, so much so as to form a cast. But here, as with the engineers, we have great difficulty in distinguishing the eminently gifted from those whose success is largely due to the accident of education. I do not, however, like to pass them over without a notice of the Kemple family, who filled so long a space in the eyes of the British world two generations ago. The following is their pedigree. A family tree is displayed on the page. I was desirous of obtaining facts bearing on hereditary from China, and there the system of examination is notoriously strict and far-reaching, and boys of promise are sure to be passed on from step to step until they have reached the highest level which they are capable. The first honour of the year in a population of some 400 millions, the senior classic and senior wrangler rolled into one, is the Chuan Yan. Are the Chuan Yans ever related together? Is a question I have asked, and to which a reply was promised to me by a friend of high distinction in China, but which has not reached me up to the time I am writing these lines. However, I put a question on the subject into the pages of the Hong Kong Notes and Queries, August 1868, and found, at all events, one case of a woman who, after bearing a child who afterwards became a Chuan Yang, was divorced from her husband, but marrying again. She bore a second child, who also became a Chuan Yang, to her next husband. I feel the utmost confidence that if the question were thoroughly gone into by a really competent person, China would afford a perfect treasury of facts bearing on hereditary. There is, however, a considerable difficulty in making these inquiries, arising from the paucity of surnames in China, and also from the necessity of going back to periods, and there are many such, when corruption was far less rife in China than it is at present. The records of the Olympian Games in the palmy days of Greece, which were scrupulously kept by the Ilians, would have been an excellent mine to dig into, for facts bearing on hereditary, but they are not now to be had. However, I find one incidental circumstance in their history that is worth a few lines of notice. It appears there was a single instance of a married woman having ventured to be present while the games are going on, although death was the penalty of the attempt. She was found out, but excused, because her father, brothers and sons had all been victors. End of chapter 19